welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shambles Sunday Science Q&A session. We are without Robin today, he's been called away to deal with some other stuff. So uh, we have me and our very special guest from the other side of the world. Never say we don't bring you worldwide expertise. Uh, we have Dr. Carl Kroshelnitsky, uh, all the way from Australia. Whereabouts in Australia are you, Carl? Uh, like most people, I come from Sydney, but I've just been up at Seal Rocks, which is the second most easterly part of Australia. And I went flippering this morning or snorkeling, and I saw a manta ray, a stingray, two metres across, and a turtle in the water. And then also saw, while I was walking on the beach, maybe five uh, dolphins at a time, the, the, a vertical in the front of the wave coming down, which is just amazing. And of course, up at Seal Rocks, um, maybe two dozen whales as well as well, well i think i think you can stop telling us that now because, because like like most people in britain i haven't seen any marine life for quite a long time because we're not allowed out very much so you know just keep your stories of the beautiful pacific ocean <laughs> keep a lid on them i reckon a little bit's all right but uh, don't make us too jealous okay so um let's have there's always admin there's always admin before we get started so let's deal with some of the admin uh there is of course a tip jar just below this somewhere down at the bottom of the screen down there and uh, so if you would like to contribute, we are supporting arts venues, all the sorts of places that are the cultural and artistic venues that are really having a difficult time through all of this. Uh, so we're still supporting them when we can. Please contribute to the tip jar if you can. Of course, you don't have to. It's, it's free. We try to make it free for everyone. Um, there is also Patreon if you would like to support, especially some of our bigger projects. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon account. You get extra long episodes of Robin and others rambling on about things if you do that. So there's and other stuff as well. So there's lots of stuff uh, for Patreon. There's all these links on the screen just below where you're looking. Uh, some other plugs. There is now a genetics shambles on Wednesday night. Uh, and the next one is at 8.30 next Wednesday. It's the new series that's being made in uh, collaboration with the Genetic Society, Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. So lots of genetics is on offer there. 
Wednesday night is going to be a bit of a gallop through the history of research into the human genome and Robin will be hosting and uh, there'll also be uh, Adam Rutherford, uh, Professor Joel McVean, uh, Sarah Teichman uh, and lots and lots of genetic science so tune in on Wednesday evening for that. The final episode of uh, our ESA series, Science in Zero G, is out now. So back in November, I think it was, uh, Jeannie Smith and I went to ESA in France. Uh, I got to fly on the parabolic flight, well, fall on it, I guess. And uh, Ginny got was helping out, talking to all the experimenters, especially on the psychological side of all of that, that we covered loads of experiments. So that entire series is now online for you to watch. So do have a look at that. And there will be a bonus seventh episode for Patreon subscribers, just to keep the, you know, keep a bit of suspense in there. What might you have if you were a Patreon supporter? Well, a seventh bonus ESA episode. Uh, and on Tuesday night, because someone has really got going with the uh, naming puns thing here, at 7.30pm, and I have to read this carefully to get it right, there will be teenage student neuro hurdles. And I'm sure whoever came up with that was very proud of it. Uh, anyway, so this is a discussion about teenage mental health. Uh, it was meant to be live at Latitude next week, but uh, of course, that's not happening. So it is going to be online on Tuesday night and lots of Cosmic Shambles regulars will be there. Dean Burnett, Susie Gage, Pete Etchells and Susie Kundu will be chairing. So definitely if you're interested in teenage mental health and all of us have either been there or will been there or will have been there, uh, go. That's 7.30 on Tuesday. Um, and if you have, finally, if you have any live questions as we're going along, we've got lots of questions on our list, but we never mind having some more added in. Uh, so if you've got any questions, send them in via Twitter or email and um, we will do our best to answer them. So we're going to get going. Now, both Carl and I have a show and tell. Um, now, mine is one my you know random things i have on my shelf um so this this is a an egg timer although i have to confess i've never used it to time eggs that's a bit of a rubbish background what can i put i'm going to find a piece of paper so you can see a little bit better anyway it's uh it's an egg timer i'm doing some this just be organized with this there we go right so now you can see uh so it's an egg timer it does what egg timers do now the fun bit about this is that it doesn't just do what egg timers do. So over here, I've got a magnet. And if I put it underneath the egg timer, perhaps you can see that all the um, the sand is not actually sand. It's magnetic material. So if I take it away, the sand all falls down. But every single little particle in here can pick up the magnetic field. You can actually, I can move it around a bit. Uh, it's not good. The nice thing is that as it piles up, it makes these little spiky things. And that's because every new little particle that falls down uh, turns into a little bar magnet with um, a north end and a south end. And they stack up in order, basically, and try and get as far away from each other as possible. So you get these beautiful little pointy bits. Um, I love the way it just goes away. I'm going to keep playing with this a little bit more. So there's the thing. Here's the magnet. Little towers of magnetism. And the thing, the thing I love about this is that, so it's just a magnetic um, uh, sand uh, egg timer. The thing I love about it is that it really highlights that the fun science is often hidden. So you could look at that egg timer, you could keep it running for years and years and years if you wanted to time eggs for a long time, and you would never know that it had all that potential if you just brought a magnet near it. And all you have to do is bring the magnet and you get a huge amount of extra fun. So that is one of the random things on my shelf for today. 
Carl, what is the random thing that you have brought to show us? Um, this is a piece of pumice, floating rock, uh, about the size of my head. And about three years ago, or four years ago, a volcano exploded underwater off the coast of Australia, a couple of thousand kilometres out to sea, and the entire east coast of Australia had this pumice, this floating volcanic rock with bubbles in it, hence it float, come on shore. Um, it was originally sighted by some pilots who saw a flat raft of this pumice covering an area the size of Belgium. That's what they said. I don't know how big that is. Um, and um, then I went down the beach and there was, it was just coming up for week after week. And so this is just one of the many pieces I brought back. And it is literally a rock that floats. So that's my show and tell. And is that the sort of thing that happens regularly in, in that area or did it come as a bit of a surprise to everyone that off with uh, um, suddenly arriving? It was a bit of a surprise. Uh, there's been some more pumice come up recently, but we don't know where the volcano was that caused that. We haven't been able to uh, deconvolute the mathematics backwards to work out where it came from. So, well, it is, there you go. If you didn't is, believe there rock, you go. If you didn't believe that rock can float, pick the right rock and it can float. Um, and also, like, pumice is the stuff that people use for, uh, or it used to be used for um, smoothing people's skin, polishing people's skin, I guess, because it was a little bit rough, but not actually going to, you know, rip you apart. Uh, so it floats and you can use it for buffing yourself up, should, should you wish. Okay, so let's get on to the questions for today. L we have lots of questions from lots of people, and um, we'd love to hear who you are. So if you send us a question, do do send us your name and your age, perhaps, uh, if you would like to. Uh, so we are going to start with a question from Matt Smythe. Uh, so Carl, I'm sure you've got ideas on this. I've certainly got a few. It says, so he says, there's a lot of talk about establishing a moon base why would you bother? I'm not, he says he's not against the idea. Um, I, he might get a vote, I don't know. He's just curious about the major benefit of having a moon base, given that we already have an international space station. So, um, Carl, what do you think moon about base? this? Do you think it's worth um, For the long-term uh, survival of humanity, yes. About four years ago, a big rock uh, missed the Earth, and of course it missed the Earth, but if it had hit, it was 600 metres across, it would have wiped out somewhere between 10 and 70% of the human race, depending on whether it landed in the dead heart of Australia or in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or on one of the 200 or so supervolcano sites around the world. Okay, 600 metres. If we had had three years warning that it was going to have a direct impact with Earth, the human race would have got together and worked out some way to divert it. We had only three weeks warning of this 600-metre rock. We have to become a space-going race. Uh, we have to get good engines, like the chemical rockets are just hopeless, you know, 15, 20 kilometres a second. I'm, I'm, I want fusion, and I want 1% of the speed of light, 3,000 kilometres a second. And so going to the moon is part of that, of becoming a space-going race. Hell. So do you think, because I, I always think about that, so first of all, um, I don't know if you're suggesting that we might go to the moon to, go to the moon to, because anything that hits the earth is going to affect the moon, I think, but also, are we not better off looking after our, um, you know, our own planet before worrying about running away to other places? 
Do you, do you think, do you really think we're going yeah. to get to other planets? Because they're a long way away and they're quite we inhospitable. We do need different types of technology. Um, and looking after Earth, we do a lot of that by having a small amount of research. The amount of money spent on space is microscopic. It went from 2% of the American budget to get us to the moon down to 0.2% to 0.02%. If you want to look at big budgets, have a look at the military budget. So I think it's part of the overall package that will lead us to a better future. So I, I would also add for Matt, actually, that um, whether or not humans go further into space, we probably want things in space that are either looking back at Earth or they're doing jobs for us, you know, keeping an eye on the sun. And if you launch something from the moon, it's much, you you don't need as big a rocket. So if you can build, you can build bigger things on the moon and launch them from there effectively, um, which gives you, so you sort of, you can take your, things there in bits because it's hard to get stuff off the surface of earth maybe you could mine things on the moon but then you've got basically a staging post that would let you go on i think um yeah it's expensive <laughs> i mean cars took um, money to go on yeah yes it is, it is expensive but um i'm trying to take the big view you've probably heard of kardashev the russian astronomer who divided civilizations by the amount of energy, sorry, or power they generated and used into conveniently one, two, and three, level one, two, and three, and we're not even level one. And the way to work it out is to remember the numbers 16, 26, and 36. So in about uh, 200 years, we'll get to the stage of generating and using 10 to the 16 watts, that's one followed by 16 zeros, which is, interestingly enough, the amount of power uh, put out by the sun falling on us in a thin pencil beam that comes from space and lands on the earth. Uh, that'll be 200 years. Going at our current rate of power energy production, we'll get to a type two civilization where we use the energy, the sorry, the power put out by the sun in all directions. That's 10 to the 26 watts in two and a half thousand years. That's a bit before the time of Christ. And another two and a half thousand years after that, we'll go to 10 to the 36 watts, which is being able to generate an use the power of an entire galaxy so the thing is we don't want to get ourselves wiped out either by stupid things like viruses by not doing proper social distancing or by getting wiped out by meteors or even stu even stupider global warming we've got to look after ourselves and space exploration is a part of that so if you can tap into the power of a galaxy then what are you going to do with it so if that's a lot of energy and you've got to collect it obviously there's all the problems sure. with that but say you did have the plug to the plug socket to the universe's uh, the galaxy's power supply what what could you what could you do with that energy well and get yourself across to the next galaxy and the trouble is that um we've got these rather inconvenient bodies i mean the point about evolution is that it just has to be good enough but the meat bags that we've designated with it we've been allotted uh, they're okay like the hip joint i like the hip joint is a ball and socket joint and i'm good on the hip joint the knee joint sucks it looks like you've got two soup bowls on top of each other sliding on top of each other uh, one on the left one on the right and they're held together by gaffer tape on the left and the right and the front and the back and a bit of gaffer tape going down the middle, you might have heard of the ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament. So I see us evolving from our shapes into a superior shape and Freeman Dyson in his book Disturb the Universe discusses that the proper shape for a human being is, and I quote, a cloud of iron vapour weighing 50 kilograms, the diameter of a planet 
flooding through space on magnetic fields. And you're thinking, but really the most important thing is how you can have sex. Well, Frank Zappa answered that. And the answer is that your brain is your main sexual organ. The other bits on the outside, they just provide input to the brain. I have to say it is very physicist-like. I mean, Freeman Freeman Dyson did many things, but it is very physicist-like to assume that the ideal shape for a human is a sphere. (laughs) I mean, really, you couldn't make that up. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I agree with him, and I do quite like my knees, but I can definitely see that uh, we are getting pretty good at replacing bits that go wrong. So, you know, maybe, maybe we just have to... I, I quite like the imperfection, actually. Oh, I don't oh. want to be perfectly optimised. I like you, You're not in for that. You want to be bionic everything. No, I, oh, I, I, I want to better. have a better shape. So you might have heard of, firstly, the anterior cruciate ligament. Have you heard about that? The terrible design. Secondly, with the knees, um, what you've got is two little things. You a, really a, a don't ball. like knees. You've got a real problem with the design of the knee. <laughs> oh, the, the eye's pretty bad as well. So you've got a little ball that floats and another little ball floating in the socket, and that's one knee. And joining the two of them is a washer. Now, you would think that the washer would be a complete circle. We call this a meniscus. No, it is not a complete circle. It's not like the letter O. It's like the letter C. Who thought of that? And it's posteriorly but it deficient. works. You know, we've got Hussein Bolt who can run the 100 metres in, you know, ridiculously short periods of time, and his knees seem to work perfectly fine. For a while, but a lot of people have problems with their knees. knees because of that close enough is good enough. So with evolution, all you have to do is have babies and then you're on your own. So maybe at 24 years and 365 days of age, you can go out for the weekend, consume your own weight in party drugs, rage away for four weeks, come back on the Monday. Okay, you do a bit of time dilation and people say, oh, how are you going, Helen? It was great. But at uh, 25 years and one age, if you stay up late to watch something on the BBC, they'll say, oh my God, you look like crap. What did you do? I stayed up past nine o'clock. Oh my God. God, darling. You know, so evolution is good enough, but we can do better. I, this, this is clearly an ongoing discussion. I'm sure everyone on Twitter has lots of opinions about this. And sleep, obviously, is another part of this because we know that sleep is good for our brains. And there's a question about whether you could have intelligence without sleep. But obviously, I, I, lots of my friends quite like sleep. I quite like sleep. But um, people feel it wastes time. I don't think it wastes time. Anyway, so if you've got questions or comments, about the nature of human beings and whether we should be aiming for some kind of spherical physical perfection or whether you quite like your knees as they are please do let us know i can see that being a long twitter conversation and then there's all the other animals that have different knees of different types anyway so let us move on to um a question from um, Sally, and she says, is there a type of renewable energy that is really being overlooked at the moment? And then in brackets, she adds, apart from all of it. So, um, tidal energy is a big one. Good. So, yeah, with regard to Australia, between the top of Australia and the two countries above it, um, New Guinea, Indonesia, appears 10% of all the tidal energy in the whole world. And the amount of it that we capture is zero. The trouble with getting energy out of the ocean is that the in, the ocean is a hostile environment. Uh, so that's one, of course. But with regard to Australia, we could provide, and, and there's 17 major renewables, we can provide all of our energy just from two renewables, solar thermal, 
to provide 60% of our energy and wind to remind the, provide the remaining 40%. It depends on where you are. So one of the Canary Isles became the first country in the world or location to become totally renewable and they have a convenient extinct volcano, which not everybody has. And so the wind blows and it generates electricity, which firstly provides electricity to the townships, but secondly, pumps water into the nearby convenient volcano. And when the wind goes down, it comes down again. So you use whatever is local. So the solution, you're, I mean, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is a fair point that the solution to a lot of renewable energy problems is to live somewhere where there is renewable energy. I mean, it is it is an arrogant thing that humans do, I think, where they just think they can live everywhere. And actually, if you, were, if you met this planet uh, cold, as it were, and you said, where do we want to live? You would pick probably these places with a volcano uh, or with some large tidal energy. I think Orkney is also 100% powered by tidal and wind energy. Um, but tides obviously vary at different heights in different places. Uh, so I think, I think Sally, that there aren't any obvious ones that are being overlooked. It's more a case of what fits in your own location. I think one of the real dangers with this debate is that there's a silver bullet solution. Like here, mm. anyone who comes to you and says, this is going to solve your problems, with the single exception of fusion if they sort it out, yeah. um, everything else is just complicated. It depends on where you live. So, so mm. don't listen to anyone that says, I can give you the solution because they're almost always wrong. Um, uh, so as an example with regard to just solar photovoltaic to supply all of Australia with its electrical energy we need an area in our deserts 50 kilometres in diameter but to supply the whole world we need a circle 500 kilometres in diameter so we can scatter the energy generation plants around the world and then just pipe the electricity through wires and of course bring on room temperature superconductivity as soon as possible thank you very much well that's, that, that's a message to the physicists isn't it get busy on all of that um and plants you know plants do a good job anyway okay so so i hope there are so i think that the answer is not many that are being overlooked just not enough effort going into the ones that already exist although there is you know it is something the uk actually is starting to do all right at could do better but starting to do all right okay next question uh from nick how do bumblebees fly? Uh, do you want to go first, Carl? It's complicated. This one is brilliantly complicated. <laughs> yeah, it involves, it involves uh, uh, over to you, Dr. Helen. <laughs> so the interesting thing about bumblebees is they do it just by moving their wings extremely quickly. So there's, there's some types of flights which is basically gliding um, and uh animals can can lift themselves up a bit and then glide a bit and they've got large wing surface areas and and it's that's how it works you get a bit of forward propulsion forward propulsion and then you've got a an aerofoil that keeps you going forward for long enough to get somewhere with it bumblebees do bumblebees do it the hard way around um and if you look at the beat so bumblebees you know if you ever see one they've got super fragile wings but when you look, they, they have this beat pattern which twists all, I think they have four wings, um, but they are pushing against the air. And the reason it works is that if you are, the smaller you are, the more important the viscosity of the air is. So for a bumblebee, at the speed it's moving, the air is a lot more like syrup rather than it is, you know, just sort of. I don't know, the nebulous stuff that we walk through. So basically, a bumblebee is stamping on the air with this very clever, complicated, fast wing beat pattern. 
that is pushing on this really viscous air and it works because the bumblebee is small enough to do it and it's happening so quickly that the air has trouble getting out of the way fast enough and 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 so the reason they make the buzzing noise is that they're basically stamping on the air they're thumping into it um and it is it's astonishing that it works it's so energy intensive it's not an elegant way to fly but it does work um mm. yeah and, you and sometimes you see, yeah, you see, yeah, you sometimes sometimes you see, see bees walking on the ground, and that's because they've run out of energy. So if you give them a little glucose drink, that'll charge up their batteries, and they'll be able to fly back again. And the myth about them being unable to fly fled uh, dates back to some time, and I forget the date. I read about this in one of my books, probably number five backwards or so, where they. Uh, try, the, the aerodynamicists tried to apply simple aerodynamics of the time and didn't take account of their complicated movement that you mentioned and the turbulence at the leading and trailing edges of the wings. But in a way, they're, as exactly as you described, they're a little bit like a helicopter. They don't actually fly. They kind of beat the air into submission. Which is the way to go. And apparently on... The on the topic of um, beating, beating nature into submission, Twitter has agreed that knees are rubbish. I still disagree with all of you. <laughs> I like my knees. So well, what, what about the retina? So in the retina, we have the, the, the retina, firstly, is one of the most oxygen-hungry parts of the body, along with the heart. It's and very the small. That's all right. But, <laughs> it's only little. So it's got big, fat blood vessels. Now, here's a question for you. Would you have the blood vessels between the retina and the outside light or behind it? And in the case of the squid, they're behind. In the case of humans, they're in front. Who thought of that? Probably the person who came up with the knees. Well, it means you can see them, right? You can check they're there. When they do that with the opticians, you can actually see your own blood vessels in your eye. It's quite nice to know they're there, I think. Yeah, and and you have to use a weird weird sort of computer programming to – Put them to make them go invisible. And if you do the thing of lying on the ground with your eyes shut and just stare at the sky, uh, if you can defocus enough, you can see little things going, and there the red blood cells in the blood vessels in front of your eye going across. This is one of the many Purkinje effects, P-U-R-K-I-N-J-E. A, I think it was a Hungarian physiologist and physicist. And Anything with that many consonants has to be Hungarian, right? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah well, I quite see, I think we have a, a difference here because I quite like seeing how things work and I don't mind things being imperfect as long as they're interesting. So um, you can go and be your spherical ball of ions without a retina in space. And I think I'm going to stay here on Earth and be imperfect uh, and um, I, enjoy enjoy the imperfection. Uh, but, but see, I, I spent 10 years in medical land being a medical doctor. And when you see a human suffering with, a, with a, a, an imperfection, at that stage you think, uh, I want a better design or evolutionary outcome. Fair point. Although, yes. Well, this is the debate going on. I if you can fix, fix, fix it. Let's let's move on from mm-hmm. the knees um, and the retina and all these other biological flaws. Um, we have a question from Sydney, who has a very good memory. This is very specifically for you, Carl. He says, ah. "I don't don't know why I remember this, um, but." 10 years ago, perhaps, on Triple J, Dr. Carl was stumped for a long time about what the most effective way to hang a towel on the washing line was for the quickest drying on a rainy day, whether it was horizontal or vertical. And I remember him talking to a number of physicists over weeks and never coming to an answer. And he would like to know if you ever found out the answer. We had people doing the experiment. experiment. So So the question is, 
it's a rainy day or you've only got a little bit of sunlight left, um, you want to hang your washing on the line, it's come through late in the day, and the question is, do you hang the towel left-right in the so-called landscape mode, or do you hang it vertically in the portrait mode? And if you think about it, you can come up with reasons why each one has its own advantages. And we had some people doing it in a garage, and I forget what they came up with. And so the answer is, I've forgotten. I don't know. And I'm going to have to chase that up. And I think I need to put that in my next book. Thank you very much, Dr. Sydney, for refreshing my memory on that. Well, I think we can all do it here. Anyone, next time it rains really hard, anyone who's got two identical-ish towels, hang one one way, one the other, weigh them before and afterwards, and see which one is heavier. I, I reckon we can all do that experiment. Uh, all right, let us move. I don't know anything about towels drying. So, well, not in that, not on washing lines in that way. So, let's have uh, um, a question from Tim Hollander. He says, Is there any difference between the way a barcode and a QR code work, or are they just different ways of storing information? So, I would say uh. they're different ways of storing information, but they're quite interesting. Go on, Carl. Mm -hmm. um, the guy who came up with the barcode died about four or five years ago, so I did a story on that, which you can get by going uh, ABC, on Google, ABC, Dr. Carl, and barcode. And they came up with a few designs, and the original one was a circular one, but they end up coming up with the one that they came up with, you know, the whole bunch of lines like this, because it didn't matter whether you went through in that direction or that direction, or if the printing was bad. So... Uh, they, they're, they're quite different, but they store information. Now, speaking about information, it seems to be the currency. And I just found out by reading a book called um, The Internet. Uh, I know it's a fairly one by somebody called Ball. <laughs> is that where, a book now? I thought it was just something you could switch off if you pressed the wrong button. Yeah, and, it, but and, there is a, and, the book's and, actually called The Internet. And to my surprise, surprise every, every single time we're talking about information and data, so the, the barcode and the, uh, and the Q code, they, they, they store information differently. Every single time you personally, Dr. Helen, go onto a different web page or refresh the one you're on, all of your details are auctioned off. And something between a hundred and a thousand people, organisations, advertising agencies, will bid on the right to put advertisements on the page that you're going to. So some of that's you can switch some of that off, right? You have some privacy controls. Uh, it's not so. It's not you can you can opt some out. Of it, of, I think if you're not aware of it. It does tend to worry people. Although some people don't mind if they they think they're getting. There's that thing about what's that phrase about? Um, if you if you don't know where the price tag is, you're the thing. If you don't know what exactly. what's being sold, it's you. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so so Facebook is free, and typically in a quarter they make thirty one point nine billion dollars of income, and of that thirty one thirty one point six is from advertising. And it's similar for Google and the like. The profits are huge. We're all sort of little bits of grist in the giant advertising machine. So your data is being auctioned off every time you go onto a new web page. Well, that came as news a few years ago, wasn't it, when uh, he was asked uh, how, how Facebook made money. Famous line, famous. Senator, we sell ads. And the, uh, the, the, the American politicians were not as up to date they had not been listening to dr carl um okay so let's move on to oh here's a good one mm -hmm. uh from lorna duggan 
what is the optimum sized pot to grow a sunflower so that the stalk isn't just tall oh. but it's thick enough to provide support for the flower so i i have never tried growing sunflowers in different sizes of pot <laughs> I imagine that because I guess the thing about so roots serve many functions, but one of them is a structural function and they are the foundation for the plant. Mm. Um, sunflowers are very I've always thought sunflowers are extraordinary structures because they are so top heavy, you know, like that. Even if it's quite a thick stem, it's still, you know, if you compare it to our skyscrapers, it's mm. a very narrow thing with this enormous great big lump at the top. They are astonishing. Have you? Do you grow? What do you know about sunflowers? Do you, do you grow them? Uh, no, no, but no, yeah. but uh, the answer would belong. Somebody like uh, our line of work, a physicist, but a biophysicist would know. And uh, I, I imagine that the roots would have to go down maybe one third or one fifth of the height of the plant. But then you have other plants that put down roots incredibly long distances. And we're now able to do mining, geological mining for or prospecting by looking at what's in the leaves of certain plants. And we found in Australia, that certain plants gather gold by putting down roots very deeply up to 50 or 80 metres deep, which is astonishing. But what, what do you reckon, Helen? Would you say like maybe 10, 20, 20% of the plant down for a broad ball of root structure? Was there enough for I, think, I think it's really interesting because they, they're very different. I know more about the root structures of trees where you can get trees oh, which... Yeah where they, they live on rock. So there's, you've only got a narrow, shallow bit of topsoil and then you have a, you have to have a lot of roots, but they're very wide. So it's like, like um, uh, a sort of signpost with great big wide feet, but they don't go down very far. And then you get ah. some that have a deep tap that goes straight down and you have this structure that goes all the way down and hold things in. And it's, it's, diff it's interesting because uh, trees and plants are different because trees um, have wood, you know, and, mm. and plants, don't i mean trees are plants but you know the sort of uh flowering plants that you see don't have this woody structure which acts as the core the structural core of a tree so most of a tree when you look at it is just the stuff on the inside the living stuff's all on the outside the inside is just the leftover structure it's a bit like coral you leave mm. the you leave the inner bits behind and grow more on top and so yeah. trees have that extra bit of you know this leftover they're basically growing on the surface of themselves their past selves that's what a tree yeah. is um, but um, so you, but, you raised a really good point there that in fact they, they with with the um, sunflowers they could go horizontally, thus giving thus them structural integrity against falling over. Where is a plant biologist when we need one? Come on down, <laughs> plant biologist. Well, I think this is the kind of the science, kind of that, science that, that has only really been got to recently because, of course, it once you pull it until very recently, you had to basically pull a plant out to see what its roots look like, and so mm. you were always disturbing things. And I think it's probably only recently that you can actually get down, you can scan well enough to to you know put basically put the entire thing inside a ct scanner and see what shape the roots are um, sure. i have a colleague who laser scans trees because apparently wow. the, estimates, the estimates of one of the ways of estimating um you know the amount of biomass on earth is to look at a you know to sort of look down from a satellite and say oh well there's some green stuff here we know that's trees we think this is how much biomass that translates into and and what he's been doing is going around actually laser scanning the entire structure of a tree uh, so that while it's still alive you can tell how much biomass is actually there and apparently the estimates the standard estimates most people work with have been quite wrong and it really depends on the wow. type of tree and it's a very subtle problem so i think there's a lot of areas of science where this you know if you can now that we can properly 3d scan things especially 
especially without disturbing them, you stand a much better chance of working out what's actually going on. You'd think it was quite easy to know how big a tree was or the mass of a tree. Mm. That It's a really mm. hard question. Um, okay. Uh, it's because because all this comes on the internet there was going to be a cat question why do cats hate getting wet i don't i don't know actually do you know anything about why cats hate getting wet don't know don't. why um i do know that most cats don't like it but then most people don't like getting wet are they specifically hydrophobic don't know we need a small animal vet to give us the answer on that I maybe would... one can come in with an answer and well, how should they give their answers if they're listening just uh, to... so Twitter, we are, we are, we're always on Twitter, and also the Cosmic Shambles email is open. I love the idea of a hydrophobic cat, though. I can totally see um, a cat just, you know, walking into a puddle and the, the water kind of just moving <laughs> away from it. But also, it's a valid question because dogs, without any hesitation, will just launch themselves splat and happily dive in lakes and ponds in the ocean. I've got friends whose dogs go surfing with them, you know, all that kind of thing. And... Uh, Cats don't. I reckon cats are probably sensing their environment, are a lot more subtle about sensing their environment. And I reckon being wet um, probably stops them stops them knowing what's going on quite so much. Mm-hmm. I wonder what happens when a cat's whiskers, you know, they, they're part of the way a cat senses where it can fit. So maybe they don't like wet whiskers. Yeah. So I don't know. Because what you're saying um, actually makes a huge amount of sense. Amount of and, sense. I su- and I suddenly realised the, or remembered the old experiment. Don't do this at home, where you tie loosely. Don't do this at home. A tea towel around the belly of a cat, and it falls over, because they use their fur for working out what their position is in total dark. And if you're providing them with stimulus from the left of their belly, the right of their belly, the top and the bottom, they're getting overstimulated and they don't know what is real. And don't do this at home. But the cat then just falls over. So I like your answer that they use their fur for their proprioception of knowing where their limbs are, but also where they are with regard to the world. And being wet just interferes with it. So what the heck? Yeah. (laughs) Great answer, Dr. Helen. Well, well, I don't know. The cats may have an opinion on this. The people who own... Because uh, people put coats on dogs, don't they, but not on cats? Maybe not ah. on cats. Uh, ah, and maybe if you do, the cat will just fall to the ground, virtually paralysed, unable to do anything, unable some, to do anything because some, it's got too many inputs. Someone is so good of their cat with a coat on it. <laughs> just don't, don't... As long as... Don't... No cats should be harmed in the doing of this experiment, right? Physics has a bad enough rap already when it comes to cats. We don't need any more distressed cats. Okay, right. So next one from Jesse Bryce um, from somewhere that isn't the UK, apparently. When moving to the UK, I couldn't believe you were allowed sockets or switches. You weren't allowed sockets or switches in the bathroom. And yet a seven kilowatt power shower is fine in the shower. Uh, so are other countries really in danger with their bathroom sockets? So yes, in the, in the UK, there are only two power supplies you can have to your bathroom. You can have uh, like a shaver shaver plug, uh, which is a, only shavers and toothbrushes and things plug into, or you can have a power shower. Um, what are the rules in Australia, Carl? Can you electrocute yourself in the shower if you want? I've got four regular GPOs or general power outlets in my bathroom and we have no specific regulations. I can see that if you were the country that was one of the first to wire itself up with electricity, you'd be worried about condensation 
from the shower, from the moist air, going into the socket and then perhaps causing corrosion. It wouldn't short things out because the water would not be carrying salt, but you would be worried about long-term reliability problems and you don't want that sort of problem. Uh, But as it turns out, by using copper and the like, we end up not having those problems. So maybe this is a hangover from the past. I don't know what the situation is in the USA, but I do know that in Australia it's perfectly allowed. I think you do get plug sockets in bathrooms in the US, normal plug sockets. Mm. Um, and I, my uh, grandfather was uh, an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, who uh, went very early on when TVs were first a big thing. He became a TV engineer. And I think I heard, I've heard my nana say that... Um, one of you know that if you plug things in wrong first of all they went bang you knew about it there was fewer less health and safety but also i've heard my mum say that they it was quite common if you had two things to plug in and you only had one plug socket that you would take the plug don't definitely do not do this 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 episode is full of things that really don't do at home they would take the plug off the second thing so you strip it down to bare wires put those wires in the hole and jam the other plug on top so that it would power both things. I know. <laughs> Apparently this was normal. <laughs> ah. um, but actually, so that takes us on very nicely, uh, and you will see why, Carl, to a question from Simon Jenkins, which is um, in reference to the, to the last episode of the ESA series, which is mm. still available. All of it is still available, uh, all six or seven parts of it, depending on whether you're a patron supporter or not. Um, it was about things cooling down in space. And he wonders why the Apollo 13 spacecraft cockpit became so cold. He had thought that with the sun shining in and the system shut, shut down, it would have heated up. And this is not unrelated to condensation. So let's start with the temperature thing. Um, mm. how, how, if you if you just have a spacecraft in space and you don't do anything to it, does it heat up or does it cool down? Um, one side will be very hot, up to 150 degrees C, and the other one will be maybe minus 100 degrees C, so they have to go through a rotation. So uh, I'll I'll hand over to you because you're a real physicist and I'm not, but basically you've got a balance between how much heat you're generating and then, and maybe black body comes into it, how much heat you're radiating out. Now, I do not know whether they have specific heating coils or facilities in spacecraft so they keep warm. I do know that with the astronauts, they have to cool them down and they have something like 90 metres of hose inside their spacesuit circulating around to keep one side over the other. Dr. Helen? Well, well so, so when we cover this on the ESA thing, obviously the, the major... So you're right that all modern spacecraft and the Apollo ones too were covered in reflective material to try and stop the sun cooking them, basically. Ah. So so you don't have a huge amount of heat from the sun. But the other thing you don't have in out in space, if you're doing what Apollo is doing, is you don't have gravity, and that means you don't have convection. And so cooling Ah. things down is really hard. As you said, Carl, uh, you know, if you're a human and you, uh, you know, if if I, I don't know, do loads of weight lifting things with this arm and this shoulder warms up. Sure. You know, my my blood vessels bring heat to the surface and some of it's radiated away, but also the air that is flowing past any air that takes a little bit of that heat warms up. And then its buoyancy changes and it moves away and another packet comes in. And, And so 
the and the buoyancy only works because of gravity so without gravity you don't have any buoyancy so you don't have this automatic like nature's cooling system is convection so oh. so i think in the case of the cockpit i think i'm not an expert on apollo this is a question for kev fong or dallas campbell um but i do think that any electronics they were running would have needed a power input to cool them down and there was a balance between the power needed to run your you know your power in thing ah. you to use too much power and also um if you switch that off then your electronics will overheat and you've got to move that heat then somewhere else so i'm not sure but i think i remember reading that um there wasn't very much heating because the electronics were just naturally heating anything like you say the temperature something is is a balance between what goes in and what comes out but then if you switch off you know they were running out of power if you start switching off the electronics you also lose your some of your heating so that is probably a question that someone on google has written a beautiful answer to and it wasn't me but um yeah go on carl no, no you, i was just thinking there's, there's a wonderful book called apollo 8 which deals with the history of it but i think you i think you've hit it on the head there dr helen where they were limited enormously in what electronics they could use and electronics have got all sorts of waste heat and i do remember from the movie that they were shivering and i think it was a pretty close to reality movie so i, I like your explanation dr helen i think you're i think you're right well i think the reason, reason related to the previous question is i think they were also worried about condensation that one ah. of the concerns was that if they changed the temperature too quickly because they were breathing out water vapor, moisture would condense on the electronics. And that was a bigger problem than anything else. Like they could be cold for a bit in order not to have condensation. So I can't quite remember how the balance worked because I think there was a separate mm. little module, but condensation was definitely part of that story. And just so, to finish off, if you buy, buy a, set a set of those nice, accurate digital scales and weigh yourself last thing at night, and first thing in the morning and do not go and have a bathroom break overnight, you lose somewhere between about 300 and 600 grams of both water vapour and carbon dioxide overnight. So you do actually lose weight overnight. And so the water vapour that you're talking about is a significant amount, you know, half a kilo. And especially, I guess, you know, it's quite warm here in the UK at the moment. And uh, if it's, it's warm, warm at night, you're probably sweating a bit more. I think that would be really interesting. That would be a great thing to do, wouldn't it? To compare the weight difference at the beginning, you know, before and after sleeping with the ambient temperature in your room. Someone could do a really nice, if anyone's really ah, bored for the next year, yes. you can measure that difference, keep a record of the temperature in your room and possibly the humidity and uh, see what you learn about your own thermoregulation. Ah, but then you'd have to account for alcohol <laughs> consumption because beer has a diuretic effect which can be summed up in six words with a comma drink a six pack urinate a 10 pack so for each 200 mils of beer that you drink you'll urine you'll generate 320 mils of urine now you can see that i haven't quite done it correctly because really it should say drink a six pack urinate a 9.6 pack so i gave up scientific accuracy for the point of poetic scanning i apologize I'm sure the beer drinkers of the world will forgive you. Uh, and I don't know, if people are getting out in the sunshine here and drinking more beer, there's something for you to think about um, along the way. <laughs> 
Uh, right. So from from R. So this person hasn't got a first name. They just have an initial, which is well, maybe it is their first name. I don't know. R. Herod. Uh, with rising oceans, what are the pros and cons of using mass desalination stations around the world to make use of all that extra water? Do all desalination plants desalinate water in the same way? So. Whoa. Okay, yeah. the ocean level, level is, is rising at around uh, nine microns or micrometers, a millionth of a metre per day. And if you took all of the two billion tonnes of shipping out of the oceans, that would drop the oceans by six microns. And so after 18 hours, the ocean would be back to its previous height. My understanding is with desalination with regard to water and what's called the hydrosphere, look it up on Wikipedia, it's a closed loop. It goes around, it comes around, it goes out, it comes around. So I don't think it's going to have any major effect on ocean level rise. Have I missed something, Dr. Helen? I don't think so, because you're right. The water isn't extra. It's it either in ice sheets or it's just thermal expansion. So actually, half of the sea level rise is due to just warmer water taking up more space. So mm. it's not extra water in that sense. It's just water that's uh, a bit more space hungry. So... Desalination is interesting, I think, because um, I have heard there was a bit of a Twitter discussion. I, I think I saw this question pop up on Twitter and that there were a, bit, a few comments after it about well, where do you put all the extra salt? And there's so much salt in the ocean. There is so much salt in the ocean. It takes um, I have to you know, I have tanks in my lab that I have to make as salty as the ocean sometimes. And if you take a, a bath, standard sort of bath, it takes a bucket of salt to make a bath as salty as the ocean. There is a lot of salt in the ocean. And this is one of the reasons that desalination is really energy expensive. It's it's a great way to get water. It, it really is a drop in the ocean. I mean, humanity has done many things that have affected the ocean, but taking water out of it is not going to hurt the ocean at all in this with the amount that we can desalinate. Because as Carl says, it's all got to go somewhere. So it all ends up back in the ocean, ultimately. Mm. Um, the pro so desalination, and of course, as, as humans are depleting reservoirs more and more. So, you know, a lot of our water comes from groundwater, which means it's uh, inside the land. There are basically water in all the little pockets in the soil and the rock. And we are depleting our groundwater reservoirs almost everywhere in the world taking it out faster than nature is putting it back. And so desalination is going to become more um, necessary. And it's also, there are places where that groundwater, so, so for example, right in California, the uh, as the groundwater is taken out, effectively the sea comes in because it's it just moves through the rock. The rock's like a sponge, the sediment, and, and the seawater comes in. And so you start to get salt under the, the fields where you're growing things, and that's the problem. Um, so desalination sounds like a brilliant idea the, the only problem with desalination is that it's really energy expensive so it happens all the time on ships when you know there's big research ships at sea the sort i've lived on or uh, cruise ships they are desalinating water all the time but it's just that they definitely need water and it's worth spending that energy because you have to have a water supply and in fact on a ship on a, on a ship which is where the ratio of people to space is uh, quite high they will say to you uh, please don't don't anyone have more than one shower a day because the desalinator can only work so fast. And obviously, we definitely need fresh water for drinking and cooking. So don't all have showers all at the same time because the system can't keep up. So that is a real limitation. So mm. so basically, the only problem with desalination, really, uh, apart from where you put the salt, is is um, 
the energy it takes up but i think it's going to become more more common do, does it happen in australia carl do people are the big plants there Yes, yep. uh, in the city of Perth, which is on the west coast of Australia and one of the most remote cities in the world, um, they get 40% of their water from desalination. Part of the problem is that the rains are shifting. And so the weather bands with global warming, which, by the way, the climatologist told us was real 30 years ago and we're still burning fossil fuels. I don't understand that. Um, the weather bands are moving from the equator at five kilometres per year. They're moving from the equator towards the pole, five kilometres per year, 50 kilometres per decade, 500 kilometres per century. And because of local geological conditions in Perth, they're especially vulnerable. So today, 40% of their water that they drink comes out of desal plants. So it can be, it can scaled, be scaled up. up. I bet it's not cheap, though. Although, oh. do, you, do they run? Do they run off solar power? Or because presumably they could in Perth. Um, we have a series of governments Australia. in Australia that deny climate change. We had a prime minister saying that climate change is crap, which is not helpful. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, and, okay, and it's also inaccurate. Yes, yes. Let's be very clear about that. We do not agree with these prime ministers of Australia. Um, okay, we have a live question that was sent in uh, about a quarter of an hour ago. And it is from Cara. And it is, how would you explain how light can be bounced around, i.e. using a glitter ball? I like your choice of example. So many things bounce light around, but you chose a glitter ball because that is the most fun kind of light bouncing around. Um, Carl, do you want to have a go at this one? Well, you've got a light source. It can either be a very narrow point source or it can be even narrower like a little laser or they're a bit dangerous or it can be just a broad source. It ends up on a ball and the surface of the ball is covered with several, I'm guessing, hundred small flat mirrors, which then, if they were perfectly aligned around the curve, would give you a nice even reflection, but they're not perfectly aligned, so you get random effects and then the ball rotates. Now, I think I've sort of run out of what I can do until you stimulate me with further thinking with your fine brain, Dr. Helen. Uh, well, I'm just going to very carefully... It's it's what the thing. So here's the thing about that question, Cara, is that I don't know... Uh, so this is a question that's got different answers depending on how much previous knowledge you have and they're not all none of them are wrong but they're all just different ways of looking at the problem so um the the, the simplest method is imagining a snooker ball bouncing off the side of a snooker table you know it goes in it bounces off at, at the same angle that it came in at just on the other side and then you get much further down into electromagnetism and what it really is and why is it that um if you send this wave of an electric field and a magnetic field why does it bounce off what does that mean and, and that gets into um how electric and magnetic fields what they do when they meet a different substance and how they deal with a boundary where things don't match because the wave does go in a little way but not in a way that it can carry on and and the, the way the energy works is it the only solution to the, there's a there's an answer to this question which is that in some really beautiful maths um the only way the maths works, that all the jigsaw pieces fit together, 
is that there is a reflected wave and that's not that's not a satisfying solution but there is a very beautiful bit of physics at the bottom of it which basically is that so so it's a really interesting question because it depends on where you're asking about i remember a few years ago i was cycling uh, in london here where we have black taxis behind a black taxi and i was realized i was waiting at traffic lights and i realized i was looking at my reflection in a black taxi and i thought that this i need to think about that because obviously if it's black all the light is supposed to be absorbed by it and not reflected but i am looking at my reflection in the surface of the taxi right this is odd and and the answer to that particular one of course is that some light is always reflected off and actually uh so normally you can't see it if the light that goes into the material a little way so some of it's absorbed and then comes back that can overwhelm all the, the light that's directly reflected but some always bounces directly off the front and it depends a bit on which angle you're looking at for so a, so you would think that a black surface has to be perfectly absorbing but you can have a shiny black surface which both reflects and absorbs all colors equally when it absorbs them so there's all these interesting little things okay we're nearly running out of time we have one more question here because uh, we have saved the um we've saved the hard one for last i think um and it is from katia s and she's put question for me but i reckon carl might have something to say about this as well and it's in one of the recent isa episodes trent will trent will get me to wave the flag for the series again you all know it's online one of the scientists was talking about how for a very long time we've been looking for a general theory of granular materials what would that entail so carl do you perhaps want to start us off on what granular materials are well, well, let me start with coffee and the big coffee problem and talk about one specific thing and then hand over to you. Thank you very much, Helen. So when you grind coffee, surprisingly, you end up with granular material ranging 100 to 1. So you can have grains as small as 10 microns up to 1,000 microns. So you've got 10 times from 10 to 100 and then from 100 up to 1,000, that's another 10. That's 100 to 1. And that leads to what's called clumping. And just recently, a bunch of computational chemists, physicists, computer engineers, and, of course, baristas were able to solve the problem of clumping, which all professional baristas know about. When they go to their international competitions, they have to make four cups of coffee, all identical, and they're using the same material, and they've done it a lot of times, and they're very skilled and they can each come out tasting differently. What you would think is that you have your little basket of coffee and you push through the water or steam at high pressure and evenly and democratically the water slash steam comes through and extracts the same amount of goodness from each coffee grain which then goes into the little bit at the bottom and then into your espresso cup. However... Because there's such a huge range of sizes with the granular materials, you can have the little ones wedging in between the big ones and they form a clump. And so if this is your coffee here, over here is a clump and water does not penetrate it. But there's a channel around the outside and there's some 2,000 plus chemicals in the coffee. And so a lot of chemicals are extracted from the channel and virtually nothing from in between, which is why you can have such a terribly broad inconsistency with uh, making coffee. Over to you, Dr. Helen. Well, this is clearly, I, I'm not a drinking 
coffee drinker. I do quite what? the smell of coffee, but I don't drink it. Um, what? I never, I never really got. I, it's funny. I don't really like the taste of coffee, but I do like the smell. When I, I there have been times when I've bought it for friends, you know, nice ground coffee, and I've just sort of kept it around for a bit because I like the smell, but but I don't drink it. Um, never got the taste for it when I was a kid. Um, so the coffee snobs are obviously all very exercised by this question for good reason. Um, but but going back to Katia's question, like this is it's a really granular materials are frustrating because they are so you would think so a granular material is just lots of bits piled up one on top of the other. And you would think that um, we know what those do. And the problem is we don't because sometimes they behave like a solid. You know, you can stand on top of a pile of soil or coffee or beans or something and you can definitely stand on top of it it's behaving like a solid but you can also pour it out of a jug so it can behave like a liquid and if you put it in zero gravity for example where we were on the parabolic flight it just kind of floats around in its space and it behaves like a gas so so it's they're really you know and the granular material in here so this is a, this is a granular material in my uh, little egg timer here and you can see that it's almost flowing like it's water but then you add the magnetism and it makes all these little oops, tree shapes. So so Katya asked, what would it mean, a, a general theory of granular materials? And what it means is we, we make them behave. Physicists like it when things behave. So, for example, if we have a gas, if we have a balloon with some gas in it, we know if we squeeze it this much, the pressure has to go up by a fixed amount. There's a, there's a mathematical relationship that says this much squeeze makes the pressure do this. And it's the same with liquids and solids. There's um, equations of state, which means that if you change the pressure, you get a fixed alteration to volume and density, and all these things are interlinked and depends on the temperature. And, and we can write down equations for solids and liquids and gases. We can write down equations that say this much squeeze, this, if we do this to it, it will do this. And the problem is with granular materials, like Carl was saying, you can put exactly the same granular material in two two you know two situations that look identical but because the tiny details are different it does completely different things so what physicists are looking for is basically a single theory that deals with all of that complication because physicists like things to be tidy <laughs> and sadly in this case i think if a theory does come along it's going to be a very complicated theory because if it was anything simple frankly someone would already have noticed um, you can see the simplest thing. So one of the, the the first things I came into contact with granular materials is something called the angle of repose. And you see this, you know it, that if you um, if you take your your materials and you pile up, you can see oh, they're not quite piled up enough yet. But you know that once they start making a pile, it has a fixed angle. So you can see this one's quite a shallow little hill that it's making all by itself. Now, that angle is really specific to the material. If you do it with beans, if you do it with Lego bricks, if you do it with soil, if you do it with clay, they all have a different angle. And just predicting that angle, say we give you one Lego brick and say, if I had 10 million million of these and I poured them out in a big pile, what would the angle be? And a physicist cannot tell you the answer. Really? And it's that sort of, con and that's such a simple thing. And so that's why that's the sort of thing that, that what physicists want is for granular materials to be tidied up nicely. But as anyone who has ever worked with glitter on a craft project knows, granular materials are not into being nice and tidy. OK, we have reached the end of our allotted questions and answers. We've almost got to the end of all the questions as well. So I think we have done uh, very well. So just before we finish, uh, we'll be back next Sunday. Uh, Robin will be back hopefully as well at 3 p.m. with even more of your questions. So keep thinking of all those odd questions. Send them all in. Uh, 
you can support us on Patreon. You can put things in the tip jar. There's lots of things on the screen above or below or around the screen you're looking at us on. Uh, so do contribute to that. We have Genetic Shambles on Wednesday at 8.30. Uh, we have Teenage Student Neuro Hurdles. I am never going to be able to say that quickly. At 7.30 on Tuesday, um, Dr. Carl has written a million books, apparently, or lots of them. It's a, it's a large number. He can probably... What did you say it was, Carl? 46? 45? Uh, I'm doing one in my 46th book has got a story about an animal that instead of having an anus there 24 hours a day generates an anus only when it wishes to defecate and then it gets rid of it until the next time and also a story about how black holes have no size uh, people get upset by that and how a dead fish can swim so if you have ever wanted to know, to know if you've ever felt frustrated with your anus and wished you can get rid of it dr carl has the answer for you in his book so uh on that note uh we because we're all about sensible science here at cosmic shambles uh we will finish for today so i hope you have enjoyed the rest of your afternoon and we will see you next week thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.